0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery Channel of the New Books Network. I'm Steve Beitler, and my guest today has written a deeply informed and valuable book on marijuana. No matter what your beliefs about or experiences with cannabis, I can promise that you will learn a lot from today's guest. In April, Cambridge University Press published Marijuana on My Mind. The Science and Mystique of Cannabis by Dr. Timon Cermak. Tim, it's a pleasure to have you here today.
1: Well, Thank you for inviting me.
0: Dr. Sermac is a retired addiction psychiatrist based in Northern California. He spent more than 40 years in clinical psychiatric practice. Tim brings extensive experience from and achievement in the forefront of addiction medicine. He is a past president of the California Society of Addiction Medicine. He co-founded the National Association for Children of Addiction. He is a board member on California's Cannabis Advisory Committee. Tim's previous book, From Bud to Brain, A Psychiatrist's View of Marijuana, was also published by Cambridge University Press. It came out in 2020. Tim believes that cannabis can be enjoyed safely by most people, as long as they adhere to sensible guidelines and take appropriate precautions. Marijuana on my mind is balanced and thorough, and it draws on the most current research on the brain to explain the effects and potential dangers of cannabis. So with that as preamble, let's dive in. Tim, I'm always interested in the backstory to a book. How did you come to write Marijuana on My Mind?
1: There are three levels to the backstory. Uh, The earliest one was uh, back in the 60s as a young man. uh, My experience with cannabis was... uh, uh, really very, very fascinating. And, and as someone who's going to go into psychiatry eventually, uh, what I really was interested in was, uh, what, what were the changes in my brain that led to the experiences? But at the time, science hadn't had no answers to that. Uh, we knew it was THC, but we didn't know what THC did. And uh, so the second phase was in the mid nineties when, uh, In California, the Compassionate Use Act was uh, uh, re-legalizing the medicinal use of cannabis, and uh, at a conference, I heard a lecture by someone who reviewed the basic science research that had happened in the previous six or eight years. And there were all the answers, Uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, it was very clear that we were, beginning to understand precisely well, in detail why uh, cannabis, uh, how it affects the brain and why it gives the experiences that it gives. Uh, so I began following the basic and the clinical literature for the next uh, 25 years or so and and frequently lectured at the California uh, Society of Addiction Medicine on on what was developing in that arena. But the, the third level was that uh, I Uh, wrote a book in 2020 uh, called From Bud to Brain, which summarized all this science for the healthcare professionals so that uh, clinicians and doctors would have the information they need to be able to give relevant and objective answers to the whole variety of questions that, that their patients bring them. But I realized right after finishing that, that that was only half of the story. Uh, the science is a very important half, but the other half is, uh, again, the experiences, the subjective uh, experiences and reactions people have, uh, and all the uh, all the attributes that they feel exist in cannabis. Uh, and that I came to be called calling the cannabis culture and that needed to be explored as well as a science if we're ever to truly understand uh, cannabis and so that's why i wrote this uh, this next book to explore uh, not only the science but also what i call the mystique of cannabis which is a good lead in to my
0: next question how would you differentiate the two how would you differentiate the
1: science of cannabis from the mystique well i had a, uh, a marvelous humanities course back in uh, undergraduate school called uh, the the Pro- public and private realm and we read literature and uh, that was really exploring how we all simultaneously live on, uh, in a sense, in two different worlds. There's the objective world uh, that we all can see and and uh, experiment with and agree on, and, and this is where uh, scientific uh, fact uh, is is the primary or or, or probably the, the best example of the objective world where we get rid of all the biases and opinions that we have and come up with, uh, with results that can be reproduced by other people over other times. And that's the objective world, of the science world, but it tells us literally nothing about uh, when people use cannabis and they have their subjective experiences, how they come to understand these private experiences and how they talk to each other about these private experiences and, and share the private experiences and find that there's commonality uh, in, in the experiences that people have. And, and, and it's this subjective private world that gives rise to such things as beauty and poetry and awe and mystery. And uh, and, and this is uh, very motivating for people. So if you're going to be able to talk about cannabis uh, in a way that makes sense to people who use cannabis, you've got to be able to talk in their language and and give the respect to listening to what are their subjective experiences and uh, try to find a way to bridge the gap between the objective science that we know and the subject experience that people have. So given uh, that range
0: of experiences, um, what do you feel that is most important uh, for people to know about cannabis overall?
1: I think I could summarize that in uh, a phrase I use: that uh, if you only know the botany, uh, you you do not truly understand cannabis because you also need to know the neuroscience. And what I mean by that, in plainer language, is if if all you study is uh, how to grow cannabis, the chemicals that are in it, and and uh, and how to use it, and all those techniques and everything. Um, you still haven't come any closer to, well, how does it impact our brain? And when it impacts our brain in the ways it does, how does that translate into the experiences that rise up into our mind? Uh, You've got to understand a a good deal about the brain. You don't have to be a neuroscientist, but you've got to understand that the brain is pre-wired to respond to cannabis. And you, it's very useful if you want to understand cannabis, that you also understand that pre-wiring. Well, I think that's, that's a good lead-in
0: to um, a somewhat scientific question. I'm going to ask you to describe the endocannabinoid system that you talk about uh, in the book and the role of the ECS in the cannabis
1: experience. Uh, this is the fascinating part of the of the science story, when we find out that uh, similar to what we found out with uh, with heroin, for example, that when we tried to figure out what it was doing in the body, we found receptors that that the opiates fit into, and then we found the endorphins, which are natural uh, neurotransmitters that uh, that fit into those receptors, and that's that's the outline, the okay. blueprint, for what we discovered with cannabis. Uh, and I like tracing the research a little bit. Uh, back in 88, we've, we discovered that there are actual receptors that uh, THC uh, fits into. And the question immediately was, well, why were they there and where are they? And we, we mapped the, those receptors in, uh, in uh, 1990 and found out that you know, they're most concentrated in areas that make a lot of sense when you look at what cannabis does. For one example, uh, everyone knows that cannabis can uh, affect our, um, our short-term memory. And lo and behold, uh, these receptors are very concentrated in an area called the hippocampus, which is where we make scratch pad memory, our, our initial memory. So then it was two years later in 92 when we discovered that there are in fact uh, natural chemistry in the brain which got called cannabinoid chemistry. Uh, But this is the chemistry which fits into those receptors. And so now we can begin to understand that there is a whole neurochemical system existing in the brain in everyone. In fact, this is evolutionarily so old that we find this cannabinoid receptors, and I'll, I'll use the name anandamide for one of the type of natural transmitters that fit into that. That that's, exists throughout all of evolution. As, as soon as nerve cells started connecting together, we find this cannabinoids endocannabinoid, meaning internal cannabinoid system to the brain. So the next thing that we had to find out was, well, what is it doing? why is it there? The more we looked at it, we saw that these cannabinoid receptors are the most common neuroreceptors in the brain. So it's gotta be a a pretty pervasively important uh, neurochemical system. And that's when we discovered that it is different from all of the other neurochemistry that we know about, you know, dopamine and serotonin and GABA and all of those. Um, they work sort of in a, in a unidirectional downstream way so that one neuron, nerve cell, connects to, to the next neuron by spitting out a little bit of that neurotransmitter and it hits the the receptors on, on the next neuron and it passes messages along. The endogenous cannabinoid system works in the opposite direction. It actually uh, now is seen as the regulator, the master regulator of all our other neurochemistry so that it it gives some negative feedback uh, to all the other neurochemical systems to keep them within certain parameters. So if our serotonin system gets to be too active, the endocannabinoid system will give some negative feedback and sort of slow it down a little bit. Or if it gets too inactive, the endocannabinoid system will really decrease its activity and and uh, sort of speed up the other neurotransmitters. So it regulates all the other neurotransmitters. Um, what's very clear is that uh, our brain health and therefore our mental health depends upon having a well-balanced endogenous cannabinoid system. And what we know now is that when you have some THC that comes in, it hits those receptors much more strongly and much longer than anandamide or any of our other natural endogenous cannabinoids will. And um, unbalances the system temporarily uh, in ways that can be helpful medicinally and that can be enjoyable for most people and can cause some paranoia and anxiety in some other people. But that, that in essence, is what this endogenous cannabinoid system is, the pre-wiring that THC fits into by mimicking our natural chemistry. I see. Um- I want to get back to some basics before we pursue
0: some of the topics that you've raised. Could you talk briefly about the differences between THC and CBD as well as
1: indica and sativa? There are two uh, archaic plants uh, in our species in uh, cannabis. Uh, One is indica, which is a shorter stouter plant and people say that it tends to have more of what's called a a body high, uh, which is uh, deeply physically relaxing. Uh, The sativa is a taller, thinner plant, and uh, people tend to say it has more of a a head or a mental high, which is more energizing and uh, often... People say that it has uh, create has more creativity to it, but I call these archaic because uh, I've I've heard the uh, the man who runs the uh, the pot farm down in Mississippi State for uh, for the government, and he says there really is almost no indica and sativa anymore. It's all hybrid. They've all been hybridized. So uh, paying attention to those two classifications really doesn't make as much sense anymore. What what you need to do is to be looking at the uh, proportions and the amount of THC and CBD, which are in whatever plant product you're buying. And that's really what's important. Um, THC and CBD come from exactly the same precursor, so that that has that has a consequence. Uh, what I mean by the consequence is that uh, if a particular plant has more enzyme to create that precursor or move that precursor into THC, there'll be less CBD, and if it has more enzyme to turn it into CBD, there'll be less THC. So um, you can get um, marijuana or or, uh, cannabis um, products that are high in THC, but low in CBD or high in CBD, but low in THC or, or balanced. Um, THC is the primary psychoactive component. Uh, It's the one that really fits into the cannabinoid receptors and activates them so strongly. Uh, Mm. CBD uh, can be thought of as fitting into the receptors sort of sideways, and so that when THC fits in, it has a modified. Response So CBD can modify THC's response in ways that uh, most people find uh, more likely to cause whatever product you're using to be relaxing and, and not to have as much anxiety. Now, CBD has its own effects in other ways, too. It, it's an antioxidant uh, and is very, uh, very effective in... Um, reducing some of the um, noxious chemical stimuli that cause pain. So theres there's a lot of things that CBD can do uh, that are separate from fitting into that those cannabinoid receptors.
0: Uh, I wanted to get back to um, something that you touched on, uh, in an earlier answer, and my question is this. Why are adolescents uh, particularly vulnerable to potential risks of cannabis?
1: Well, two things. First, we have to recognize that there's lots of evidence to prove that they are more vulnerable. Uh, if you uh, start using cannabis at age 13, by age 15, uh, about 17% of people will already be addicted to it. Whereas if you start using at age 20, by 22, maybe 3% will be addicted to it. So there's plenty of evidence that it is more addictive more quickly in adolescents. Now, that's true of a lot of different addictive chemicals, not only cannabis. So uh, I'll go on to some other evidence that that proves that it's uh, more risky for adolescents. And that's in something called the Dunedin study that looked at uh, over 1,000 people were all born in 1972, 73, and um, did uh, really intense uh, neurocognitive uh, testing when they were 12, 13, before they ever used cannabis, and then again at age 35, and then again at age 48. And what they were able to show is that um, those people who began very early are the only ones who showed any reduction in IQ later on at age 35 and, and 48, uh, as much as uh, an 8 points reduction, which is which is enough to modify the kinds of careers that you are, that, that you can successfully do. For those people who started later, maybe even at age 18, no matter how much they smoked after that, their IQs didn't change. Uh, so we know from those two pieces of evidence that it's clearly riskier. Now, why? Um, at age 11 or so, when we uh, go into puberty, there is a massive uh growth of connections among the nerve cells in our brain uh what, what are called synapses you can think of this as being like uh, springtime in your garden when when your bushes start sprouting twigs all over the place uh and it's very useful for the health of that plant to go in and with some skill um prune those twigs which are duplicative or going in the wrong direction or, or trying to make leaves underneath other leaves and so they'll never get any sun. So it's it's the pruning is a very important part of the health of, of that plant. And the same thing is true uh, with adolescence, that there is this massive uh, growth of connections among the, the nerve cells. And Uh, the pruning that happens is uh, the result of learning, which occurs. Um, Now, those um, connections uh, occur because our endogenous cannabinoid system is pushing the nerve cells out to make those connections. And very clearly, since the Brain is still developing, and in a very critical stage of development, if you start throwing a lot of uh, uh, high high energy THC into this endogenous cannabinoid system, uh, you begin um, interfering with the natural uh, growth and pruning in all of those connections. So. That's the, the basic reason why we think that it's extremely important for adolescents, particularly the younger teens, uh, to avoid, uh, delay cannabis use. And if they do enter into cannabis use, to be uh, exquisitely uh, careful about how frequently they use it because their brain is still developing. The endocannabinoid system has to be well balanced in order for that to occur uh, normally in an unhealthy way, and it will be interfered, that health will be interfered with by um, using the too much THC. I, I want to try to tie some of this together, if I
0: understand correctly. And I want to ask you uh, what you mean in the book when you talk about the capacity of cannabis to hijack the brain. How how does that work sort of physiologically and perhaps functionally as well?
1: As well, yes. Um, now we're talking about a small portion of the brain can be called the reward system. Uh, and we know uh, there's a particular uh, center uh, called the nucleus accumbens. You don't need to, to remember that. But that, that's really important because uh, any, any drug of addiction... Uh, whether or not we're talking about Xanax or alcohol or cocaine or, or cannabis, uh, any drug of addiction leads to there being an outpouring of dopamine into that reward center. Uh, and I use the word outpouring because uh, if you have a good meal or a sexual activity or exercise, that causes some rise in the dopamine in that reward system. Uh, and that leads, whatever leads to an increase in dopamine will tend to be repeated. Um, uh, it's rewarded and so it gets repeated. And so when you use uh, cannabis too frequently and and to too much, um, you get such an outpouring of, dopamine into that reward center, that it literally begins to change the shapes and the sizes of the nerve cells in that reward center. And that leads to the kind of hijacking because our reward center uh, alerts us to what stimuli out in the world are salient, which ones are really important. Uh, if you're For example, if you're really hungry and you're walking down the street and you smell a bakery, you're going to have quite a response to that and you're going to be quite attracted to it. Um, If you have modified this reward system with uh, too frequent cannabis, what will happen is that um, those things that – remind you of cannabis, those things that bring it to mind, uh, are automatically going to uh, lead you to be thinking about it and seeking it more than you would otherwise. And sometimes more than you would other kinds of rewards. And there's, there's some good research that, that shows that um, people who have uh, been smoking the most cannabis over time uh, if you put them in tests where they get uh, uh, financial, small financial rewards for the test, that the reward system just doesn't respond as much to the financial rewards. Uh, the brain has been hijacked, and in a way that mentally now you will see anything to do with cannabis as being more important than you would have previously. <laughs>
0: I want to dive a little bit more deeply into this with a specific question about disease. Is cannabis, in your view, linked to schizophrenia? And if so, what is the nature of that link?
1: Well, I, I like the word linked. Um, and the answer is yes, it is linked. Um, there will two pieces of research that are useful to look at. One is that we now are very clear that people who use high THC cannabis, uh, there was research in uh, South London where where skunk, uh, which is a um, a generic term really now for very high THC uh, marijuana, um, that those people were um having uh, psychotic difficulties and schizophrenia-like illness four times more frequently than the average population. and and they then went over to Europe and looked at I think 13 different cities and they just looked at uh, what's the rate of people coming into the emergency room uh, with uh, temporary or or, uh, onset of, of a psychotic disorder. And then they correlated that with what's the average dose, average uh, concentration of THC in the marijuana available in those cities. And again, they found that the higher the uh, THC content, um, the higher rate of uh, visits to the emergency department with uh, psychotic difficulties. So, It's very clear that uh, it is linked to psychotic disorders and for those people who um, become schizophrenic, it's also very clear that if they use cannabis, they will um, have more hospitalizations, longer hospitalizations, and more intense um, psychotic symptoms. Now, what is the linkage though? that's that's the question. And that gets into some genetic research, which is so complex these days that I can't even follow it all. But to the extent I can follow it, um, this is this is what I understand. There's a group of uh, of genes that are all associated with schizophrenia, and the more of those genes you have, the higher the risk uh, you have of becoming schizophrenic. And several of those genes are the same genes as uh, what are related to the group of genes that, if you have, make you more likely to become addicted to marijuana, to cannabis. And so there's some crossover between the genetic control of our brain's response to cannabis and our genetic control over whether or not we become schizophrenic. Um, they share some of the same genes. And that's about as far as I think we, we can conclude at this point. Okay. Um, I
0: want to switch gears a little bit and talk about, um, the mystique aspect of the book and of your work. Um, you talk in the book at some length about cannabis culture, and I would like our listeners to hear, uh, how you describe cannabis culture and what the significance you see of that culture, uh, as being, um, so I'd love to hear you uh, talk about cannabis culture and why it is so important.
1: Well, cannabis culture is uh, my name for um, a, a group that that is not monolithic. It, it includes um, people who use cannabis, and that would mean um, people who use it medicinally, people who are absolute stoners and people who use it uh, occasionally recreationally, all of whom uh, believe it is of great benefit to them and are strong advocates for uh, its legalization. But it also includes uh, a large and soon to be massive industry. Um, and from venture capitalists right on down to uh, your local dispensary and your um, and, and your farmers, some of whom are corporate farmers and some of whom are what we call legacy farmers who've been doing it you know for three generations now. Um, they have a financial interest in it being legal. And, and then there are people who are have always felt as though the war on drugs was a, a uh, misdirected way of trying to deal with uh, uh, drug problems in, in the United States. Rather than being punitive, we needed to make uh, treatment on, on, as needed, uh, available as quickly as possible. Uh, th- these are, And then there's the grandmothers who have uh, seen their grandchildren get in to jail, and, and they're definitely opposed to that. So it's a conglomeration of people, all of whom uh, feel as though it is important to, uh, to um, legalize and, and regulate the, the cannabis uh, industry. Now, um, among them there are, are, are different levels of belief, but particularly among those who use cannabis, um, there is often a belief that there is uh, a numinous quality to this. Uh, it's almost uh, a pagan belief where uh, Early religions felt there was a spirit in every rock, plant, um, animal, and uh, the consuming uh, a plant with that you consume its spirit, and and it uh, leads to a change in the way you see the world. Uh, and so, there's a lot of um, sometimes airy fairy talk about. Uh, uh, the um, the Age of Aquarius uh, happening with this plant and it's a gift from the gods and all of that. But when you talk to individuals about it, y- you start getting s- uh, information that's really less airy-fairy. Uh, it's really people saying, um, it, it reoriented my view of the world. Um, I previously thought there was only one way of seeing the world. And uh, then I had something to smoke. And I realized that things I had passed over and not paid any attention to are much more fascinating, m- much more um, beautiful. Uh, and, and I began feeling a sense of connectivity, not only to other people, but sometimes to the entire environment that I that I that I around me. And um, that in in this different way of orienting to to the world and perceiving the world, I came to realize that um, there's a framework we carry around with ourselves in our day-to-day life, which is, um, oftentimes much more narrow and much more rigid and much more functional. And it's just do this and do that. And and uh, it doesn't often take the time to sit back and, and appreciate um, just the mysterious reality of uh, the, the, the mysteries of all the reality that surrounds us. And so a number of people, in fact, three quarters of people who use cannabis say that there's some spiritual aspect to it. Uh, Maybe a quarter of people who use cannabis say that's the primary reason they use it, because it gets them in touch with something that they call spiritual. Um, So it raises the whole issue of, well, what what does spiritual mean? Um, There's some really uh, interesting things on the internet by uh, a Mr. X, who is actually Carl Sagan, uh, a a, um, astronomer that did that marvelous uh, PBS uh, Cosmos series some time ago. And he says that he's not a religious person, and yet there is a sense of uh, communion that he often feels with the natural world at the times that he's had some some marijuana to smoke. And what does he mean by a communion? Uh, whenever we think of communion, we think of there being sort of a a two-way connection with the world that is very meaningful to us that rather than just walking around as an isolated person who is uh, functioning in the world, making things happen, um, people who use cannabis start seeing that no I, I'm probably more a part of the world rather than master of the world and and there's something um, comforting in that sense of connection with the natural world. So I wanted to pay attention to what people say and try to understand, is it all baloney or is there some reality to it? And uh, when you start looking at uh, what parts of the brain it affects, you start realizing that, yes, there's a sense of timelessness. Time is altered. Uh, A sense of time is altered when people are... Uh, are high. There is a sense of profound physical and emotional relaxation that often leads people to be saying that they they notice and appreciate uh, the roses <laughs> in a way that they don't normally do. And uh, when, when you start uh, listening to, well, why do people meditate? It's because they feel deeply relaxed physically and emotionally. They often notice, it refreshens their their sensory reaction to the world. Uh, They feel a sense of communion with things. So I I don't think that this is um, necessarily a substitute for um, other kinds of spirituality, but it it exists and it's important to people, and so if you start talking to people about cannabis only from the scientific objective side and say, "Oh, but do you know that you can become addicted and there's uh, it can alter your IQ if you start too young," and just starting with all the potential risks, the people who in cannabis culture who have some. I'd almost say devotion to um, what they see as the benefits they've derived derived from, from their use. Um, they feel as though y- y- you simply don't understand. You don't know what you're talking about. You're, you're talking a foreign language and uh, to some degree, they feel battered by the science uh, and not listened to. So if you're going to have a bridge between these two um these two sides, the private and the public, um, you've got to find a way of listening to what people value and then sometimes bringing them some of the science to help them understand uh, why the changes cannabis causes in the brain uh, creates those experiences, and you can start a discussion about the science eventually
0: talking in people's language um, and talking in the terms that they relate to becomes very important. Um, I want to switch for a moment, Tim, from the spiritual to the political realm. Um, As I mentioned in my intro, you've served on California's Cannabis Advisory Commission, and I know you have some uh, strong feelings and thoughts about how the state's current regulatory regime uh, might be improved. Um, I'd be very curious as to your current thinking on how California and potentially other states might do this better.
1: As far as I can see, most states are making the same mistake that that, uh, California has made, which is there's too much emphasis put on the health of the industry and not enough on public health. So that on the um, the cannabis advisory committee that I'm on, um, there's maybe three out of the 21 who have a public health interest and all the rest tend to have an industry related interest. And I find that the people who uh, are the employees, the state employees who are regulating, um, They have a tension going on, where if they don't develop a healthy cannabis industry, um, then there's nothing to talk about. (laughs) You know, then it's just going to eventually, if it's if it if it doesn't work, it's it's going to be discarded. So there's an overemphasis on on the health of the industry. Now, California has a particularly difficult situation where. the estimates are different, but uh, clearly the vast majority of the cannabis which is grown here uh, is not entered into the legal market. So how do you how do you promote a, a legal industry uh, and um, gradually diminish the the illegal side of the industry? And so I, I have some uh, compassion for the people who have that um, as their uh, as, as one of the priorities to, to make sure that we have uh, a healthy legal industry. But in the process, uh, they're completely ignoring. Um, should they allow vaping with nine, over 90% THC concentration with no CBD in it? Uh, is that safe? Well, it is allowed. It, it, it can be sold here. And all of the information that we have about high THC is that that's where people are going to run into more problems, problems with addiction, problems with psychotic difficulties. Um, why allow that? And, and yet it, we're making little or no progress. I would say no progress in getting the regulators to step back and acknowledge Oh, there's there's there could be some risks here that we're not even paying attention to, and so we're becoming complicit in permitting these products to be to be sold. Uh, at, at the same time, um, the vaping uh, can have all kinds of uh, fancy um, flavorings, uh, bubble bubblegum and strawberry and all that. Now. It's not legal in in uh, California for tobacco, uh, nicotine vaping, to be flavored. But the cannabis can be. And a lot of these flavorings, like uh, like um, Girl Scout cookie dough flavoring and all that, I mean, a lot of these uh, are going to be fairly attractive to, to youth. And although youth can't go in and automatically buy it, you know, they get it one way or another. You know, someone who's 21 can uh, can say to their 16-year-old friend or, or brother, well, what would you like me to pick up for you? Oh, I'd like some of that bubblegum vaping. It's it's just not a good idea. So that's the primary difficulty that I see right now is that uh, public health simply has not been well represented. If it's weakly represented among the regulators and among the advisory committees, Um, then then I don't think we can ignore it in the same way. Um, I wanted to uh, switch yet again uh,
0: to uh, the family realm, if you will. And I wanted to ask you to uh, talk about, uh, as a physician, um, what counsel would you offer to parents who are concerned about cannabis in their children's lives?
1: Well, the first question I ask uh, a parent when they say, "Oh, I'm worried that my 14 uh, year old is starting to smoke cannabis," the first question I ask them is, "What's your relationship to cannabis?" And you often find that, "Oh, well, I, I used it and uh, I still use it sometimes," or, um, "And where do you keep your cannabis?" <laughs> and what's your relationship to alcohol? So. Uh, I find that people just want to have their cake and eat it too. <laughs> they, they just want to have their own oftentimes less than healthy relationship to, to drugs and alcohol. Uh, but they don't want their kids to, to have the same relationship. So, uh, I get them looking at their own relationship first. And, uh, if there's reason for a little bit of humility, I, 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 i point that out to them. Uh, Secondly, um, I asked them, what what messages have you given? What are the values in your family regarding adolescent use of cannabis? Um, And over and over, I see uh, one member of the family say, well, my brother went off to college and dropped out and has never been the same, and I don't want my kid to use it. And the other member, the couple saying, I was using it when I was 13, and it's great. I had fun, and I'm a lawyer now, so big deal. Uh, so you have to get parents on the same page um, and see what, what are the, the values and the messages that you want to be uh, communicating. Um, are you able to talk to your adolescent uh, child about cannabis without preaching? Are you able to talk in a way that's a true discussion where you're actually listening to them and they're feeling listened to? Uh, if you can't do that, you're, you're, you're not going to have the level of communication that you need. So you need to work more with your ears than with your mouth in, in trying to have a discussion with your adolescent. Um, if you have, and, and then I go into what changes have you seen in, in the adolescent. And if it starts being clear to me that, uh, that the, the adolescent has had um, a complete change in the, in the kind of friends that they have and the grades are being completely neglected and things like that, uh, I will say um, it, it would really be best for you as the parents to initially uh, seek the the council and a little bit of a time with an addiction specialist. Now, since I am one, you know, I don't send them somewhere else, but that I would say most, most doctors aren't. And so I would uh, encourage them to get them to someone, an addiction medicine person and, and learn more about cannabis yourself before you try to control your kid. And, and then probably best if you can't have a conversation in which you're doing a lot of listening, it would be best to have your child see the addiction specialist, him or herself, in order to get a a more objective view of what's going on. Uh, Along those lines, I want to um, finish up
0: with um, something you talk about in the book, the the signs of cannabis overuse. Um, What are those signs that people might want to be alert to.
1: So I do make the point that I think that the uh, the majority and even I might even say the vast majority of adults can use cannabis safely if they're aware of five signs that they're using too frequently or, or too much. Now, the groups that that are eliminated. And when I say most, those who shouldn't be uh, thinking about using it, of course, are adolescents, pregnant women, uh, people with addictive disorders, and people with um, uh, significant mental health issues. Uh, Those should avoid using it. But but for the vast majority, um, what you should look for is it, when you are not using it, when you stop using it, um, you know if you uh, go on vacation and and can't use it, or go on a business trip and can't use it, or something like that. Um, do you find that you are more physically restless, um, and I mean just fidgety physically? Is there is more of that? Are you uh, do you have more anxiety? Or even, uh, does it rise to the level of irritability? Um, Do you find life more boring, um, where nothing seems to pique your interest as much? Um, Do you have insomnia? Uh, And uh, do you find that your appetite is lower? Now, what would cause those things? and this is where understanding this endogenous cannabinoid system is really important. If you're using uh, cannabis too frequently, it will start. Your brain will start reducing the number of cannabinoid receptors, uh, as much as twenty to sixty percent lower than normal, depending on what area of the brain you look at. Um, Consistent users will have 20% fewer cannabinoid receptors in their frontal lobes, which are where our higher cognitive functions are. Um, so when you l- begin reducing the number of cannabinoid receptors, and then you stop feeding them the uh, higher, the you know, the higher, more active the stronger THC, you actually go into a cannabinoid deficiency state. Your endocannabinoid system is, is less active than it should be. And you feel several things which are the opposite of feeling high. So when you're high, people tend to feel relaxed. They can even get couch lock. But when you're not high, you have the opposite. You're fidgety. When people are high, they generally feel emotionally more relaxed and uh, chill. But when they stop using, they feel the opposite: anxious and and irritable. When they're high, everything is fascinating. You know that that rainbow on the on the side of a the soap suds, every, every bubble in the soap suds. You never noticed that since you were four years old, but now you see it again. But when you stop using, even things that are that are novel don't strike your attention. Uh, and of course you have the munchies when you're high and when you stop, you have the opposite of the munchies. In fact, um, there's there's a blocker of our cannabinoid receptors that was used uh, in uh, France for a while with obese people to give them the anti-munchies to reduce their appetite. And it worked, they actually lost weight but uh, about one in, one out of every eight of them became so depressed that they were having suicidal ideation. You need a well-balanced endogenous cannabinoid system. And if you use infrequently enough, and that'll be different for different people. Some people it means once every other week. Some people maybe they can do it once a week without encountering this reduction in cannabinoid receptors that create those five signs that you're using too frequently for your brain to maintain its normal endocannabinoid balance. Tim,
0: I really want to thank you for your time today. I want to congratulate you on the publication of Marijuana on My Mind, and I want to express my thanks for all you're doing to provide science-based guidance on an important and emotionally charged Substance. And I want to thank all our listeners for joining us today on the New Books Network. Take care and stay safe.